Hi everyone. Um, before we get going here today, I just wanted to give uh, a content warning for uh, discussions on suicide and mental health struggles and, and um, a lot of the other things relating to the story and, and life of Chris Canyon that are openly discussed on today's episode. Uh, if you are considering suicide, LGBTQ youth ages 24 and younger can reach the Trevor Project lifeline at 1-866-488-7386. Adults can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255, 24 hours a day. And it's available to people of all ages and identities. Trans or gender nonconforming people can reach Trans Lifeline at 877 877- Five six five eight eight six zero. Hello, lovelies. And welcome to another edition of LGBT in the Ring, your rainbow bastion for all things pro wrestling. I am your host, Brian Bell, here with you once again on the Outsports Podcast Network. And today is the rare occasion where I do that intro whenever I have interview guests on, because this is a special episode. Um, obviously, Thursday night, Vice's Dark Side of the Ring docuseries aired an episode all about Chris Canyon, a um, icon within LGBTQ pro wrestling circles who also, um, you know, dealt with so many different issues related to the concealing of that identity and a lot of different aspects that that factor into um, the treatment of queerness in pro wrestling during that era. And um, it will be remiss if we on this show did not discuss that in some way, and I'm very happy to have as my guests to kind of walk through this episode and, and Chris Canyon's story a bit. Um, two previous guests that I really enjoyed having on before. Um, first off, from Girl Wrestling Fan, Will You Marry Me, Kate Foray. How are you doing today, Kate? Good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. And co-host of Grit and Glitter, M. Fear. How are you doing today? how you doing brian doing well doing good so um before we started recording we immediately jumped into a conversation <laughs> that uh was very uh, like very like in your face if you watch the episode because this is the first time that dark side has actually like delved into a topic that relates to queerness and pro wrestling um at least to the extent that this was i know that they've touched mm-hmm. on people here and there in different episodes but never the main subject mm-hmm. and I, I have to say before we get into any of the content of the show and and how they told the story of chris canyon the very first thing that popped out to me once the credits started rolling is that like y'all really didn't get any queer people to talk about this guy in this show i'm in you know in like i know you were saying while we were before we started recording that like it's it's important to have these primary sources, but you also need to have people that can speak to the experience that Chris Canyon went through. Right. Right. Like there, there's no wrestler you can talk to who was like influenced or like learned from that example, or like, you know, knew of the story 
about Chris Canyon and went into wrestling with trepidation and concern and has found that the landscape has changed so that they are more well, like there, there wasn't anyone who could use this as an inspiration point. I just, I felt like this episode was lacking that. And, and while they, it, it did cover a lot of really crucial elements of his story, lacking that queer voice to say that this person mattered to me in this specific way was a missed opportunity because it also would have given shade to the fact that he is influential in that way. He is influential for the current generation of queer wrestling talent who are getting into the business and do not want to have to live in the closet, do not want to have to keep their identities in the shadows. And I, I just feel like it was such an important thing to have featured that it's surprising to me that they didn't. Yeah. And, and, it was great that the Young Bucks and DDP like touched on that and said like there's so many wrestlers who, you know, were not only inspired by him, but like, you know, the landscape would have been far more accepting today. And yet you had nobody to really speak to that. Like they were speaking on behalf of instead of somebody speaking like from their own perspective. It was, I mean, I know there's only an hour. And, you know, they want people that are close to him to kind of talk about it. But there was definitely a missed opportunity to not include at least one or two voices or just just something. Just, I don't know. That's, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, for me, I think it, it really kind of boiled over to the point that I couldn't sleep last night because I had to just get thoughts out. Um, was the fact that at, at the very end of the episode, you have DDP there giving, mm. you know, talking about like, you know, there are so many more like gay and trans pro wrestlers now. And then they cut to this video package to show like the Young Bucks mm -hmm. and to show Brian Cage because like they, they're the interview subjects and you know, they, you know, they were very close with, with Canyon and they show like how like the moves have translated into their moves. Yeah. Using AEW's library, AEW has like multiple queer people on their roster. You couldn't put one image in that sequence of one of your queer roster members, um, or footage of a queer roster member on AEW to at least give some face to it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just it, it feels like such a severe, severe oversight, um, in, in a lot of ways for me, and I. Oh, I, it's all coming back to me now. <laughs> it makes me sad, you know, because I, I think that it's still the, these wrestlers, queer wrestlers, trans wrestlers, it's worth highlighting that they are very present and accounted for in pro wrestling right now. And I think it's still important to push the fact that that visibility needs to be needs to be highlighted. And in a subject where you are talking about somebody who had to keep that part of their life so far removed from their public persona, it just seems like such a shame to not feature somebody who can talk about the flip side of that, about being getting to be open about their sexuality, about their identity, and also be a professional wrestler, you know, pro, uh, employed and promoted by a major company. Like, it just... Like, why not? It, sets a, it made a bummer story. It made a sad story. It made a tragedy all the sadder because there was no even silver lining of being like, 
this is the state of change things. It's one thing to hear someone say that. It's one thing to hear DDP say that, but it's another thing to see that, to have that visible marking, that visibility of a queer or transgressor saying, it has changed in an important way. This is who I am. And this story is something that helped make me want to choose a different path. Especially from what I understand, AEW has like a good relationship with the people who create Dark Side of the Ring. So there was not even, you know, an issue of like accessibility to these wrestlers. Like you have, like you said, we have so many. Did nobody want to talk? Like, I, I, did you even ask? I think that's what's so frustrating because their whole thing was talking about how he was the first openly gay wrestler and open doors and okay, open doors specifically for whom? Like, it's great that you're saying that it was, but whom specifically? I would like to know, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, look, <laughs> that's such an excellent point. If you're going to use footage from AEW because they're allowing you to use a bunch of footage, mm. then you at least include some of the people who are on that roster who are actively a part of that community. And you can't tell me that they didn't have access to a ton of like really high profile independent wrestling talent. They just did a whole episode about Nick Gage. There's a ton of people who've worked with Nick Gage who exactly. would be perfect to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's just, it's such, a, it's one of those things where it's like, it's so obvious, it's frustrating and infuriating because it's so obvious. You know, we're not nitpicking here. This is mm. like, they had to know that they were going to get dinged on this. They had to know. I mean, I think it speaks to, and I, you know, know nothing of the, the staff and, and the creative team behind who creates Dark Side of the Ring. But I think that's something that we talk about just in wrestling as a whole. Like when you don't have people behind the scenes who are queer working on the product, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera, that stuff, you know, you, it, it, it can't be an excuse that you didn't think about it, but from the perspective of somebody who isn't thinking about it, they aren't thinking about it. And that, you know, that happens in companies everywhere where if you don't have representation on your staff, then the product or whatever that you're putting out isn't going to be inclusive to those people that you're missing from your staff. And I think that's, I mean, that's part of a larger conversation of, you know, people, you know, not just having people in front of the camera who are, you know, queer, LGBTQ, trans, you know, black, you know, it's behind the scenes too. It's, it's, you know, the production camera, like anybody could have said, Hey, do you think we could get, we should ask so-and-so we should ask this person. We should ask that person. So I think that's, that's just a, another source of frustration is that they're, they're what it feels like are straight voices speaking for queer voices. Sure. And in a uh, episode that is so much about representation, mm. it seems very odd to me that it's like, we are thinking actively about representation and what this man represented in the mm. field of pro wrestling, but we are not carrying that representation into the episode about representation. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and I don't want to draw a bad comparison here, but like, imagine how crazy it would be if you had like a documentary about Booker T and there were no black wrestlers featured like yeah I just there's like to or you have a documentary about I mean we, we saw 
we saw women featured in the fabulous Mula episode of Dark Side of the Ring. Like when you are covering representation in specific ways, like you have to carry that through the whole thing, including at least someone within that community that you are representing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, for sure. Like I don't need James Mitchell to talk, tell me about internalized homophobia. Um, <laughs> that's just, yeah. Anyway, that that's a, I think that's a nice opening salvo into the actual episode here now because you know I think Canyon's story is one that you know it's been told before you know obviously we have the the book from from him and, and Ryan Clark that came out um, you know shortly after his death in 2010 and uh, you know a lot of the conversation around Canyon himself you know has been when either centered on like his innovative wrestling style or the fact that of his experience with being closeted and then finally coming out and everything that happened after that. Talk to me a little bit about um, y'all's knowledge of Canyon before going into this episode and how this episode kind of interacted with that knowledge for yourself. I'll start with Kate on this one. Um, So I think I mentioned before that I, I wasn't like a big WCW fan, like we watched it in the house, but um, I I didn't know too much about Canyon. I knew after, once he became like Chris Canyon, like the who better than Canyon sort of character. And then especially when um, WWE bought WCW and ECW and they had, you know, that whole angle with all the wrestlers coming in. And, and that was really my biggest introduction to him. Um, and I liked him. I didn't know enough about him. I, I, I liked him. I definitely, I saw that segment with the undertaker, like live in the sense that I watched it when it happened. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember like, I was like 17, so I wasn't out yet, but I had friends who were, you know, gay and, and, and lesbian, but it, I knew at the time it was like, it felt weird, but it was something that kind of like was a passing thought. And then we watching it last night, just, I wasn't expecting to get so emotional, just having that context of like, I remember in the time after he was released and just hearing stories in, in the dirt sheets, essentially talking and cropping up about him and him being gay and just having it circle back and, and, and watching it with that and watching it within the context of the episode just uh, <laughs> was was a lot. It was very it was very emotional, I guess, for me, just because watching it again with that context and with like new new eyes, essentially, is the best way I can describe it. Is just what the fuck? <laughs> like what what the fuck are we watching? <laughs> that's that's that was my takeaway. Is what, what the fuck was I watching? growing up like that's what that was what I was watching <laughs> yeah I don't know for what about you for you Em? um I wasn't watching a ton of wrestling when I was a kid I I've talked about how I'm a fairly I'm still a fairly new wrestling fan and that my wrestling fandom only dates back like several years at this point but my my partner he watched wrestling and he watched a lot of WCW, especially in that era. So when I brought up Chris Canyon, I think actually maybe a year ago when I asked him about it, cause I had seen his name on a list of like, you know, famous gay and, and wrestlers. Um, when I asked him about Chris Canyon, um, his immediate response was, oh, whoa, 
guy was completely before his time. So a, like the thing I understood about Chris Canyon before I even really understood how like tragic his story was, was that like his wrestling alone was kind of what kind of set him apart at that moment because he was doing things and his offensive style was just out of the norm for wrestling at that point. So that kind of also created him as an outlier. And so he told me a little bit about what he remembered from Canyon, including um, the Who Better Than Canyon era and um, how people would yell everybody and he would like catch them at one point and he was really good at delivering. Uh, he got really good at delivering like heel promos. And so he had a lot of really great things to say and he didn't know pretty much anything about the backstory other than what he remembered watching on screen and then just hearing a little bit here and there afterwards. So when we watched it last night, we we both were learning a ton of things, but that was my first, like his, his memories of Canyon specifically in ring were what like my first um, exposure to that, which is really kind of cool because he had a lot of really great things to say about his, just his pure wrestling ability. Hmm. Uh, Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. Um, Yeah, we were watching it last night and my partner was a big WCW fan um, and he remembered Mortis and he (laughs) loved it. Like he was a huge Mortal Kombat fan. And so that whole angle that they were talking about that essentially got scrapped by NWO. I knew of NWO and that's kind of when I was jumping in and got introduced to all that. I didn't understand the context from like a WCW fan perspective where he said he was one of those fans that said NWO ruined a lot. Like he was not excited by NWO. It it like, it was interesting because everything, you know, I hear as a fan and fans back in the day, like NWO, like everybody loved it. Everybody was on board. And so to hear him from that perspective of actually, like, I wasn't a big fan of it. I really liked what was going on over here and it went away and it was very frustrating um, to have that context was interesting. Cause he didn't know everything after that. Cause he didn't, he kind of stopped watching wrestling mm-hmm. at some point. So he didn't know everything with WWE and Undertaker and him leaving. Like he wasn't as into it kind of like we are, but um, to get that perspective too is just interesting. Just. No, for, for sure. And, you know, I, from, I'll speak to my experience. Like I grew up watching WCW and, and WWE and Mortis was a, like the coolest shit to me when I was like elementary school, Brian. Um, it was like, it was just so such an awesome presentation of the character um and while i was into the nwo aspect of whenever that did happen um mortis the i think the staying power and and the love that people still have for that character speaks wonders to what it was you know so much so that like glacier gets a lot of love too but nowhere near as much love as as mortis does uh in a lot of ways and that Okay, I have one nitpick with some timeline stuff here that from the episode because Mortis debuted after the NWO formed. So I'm like so I don't want to get into like this kind of like nitty-gritty stuff with with like how they do their timeline on the show, but like there's a there's a there's a mess up there <laughs> anyway. Um. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of confusing time things in this one. Um, I I know that Dark Side kind of because they have to condense it to an hour. Yeah, they're not always the best when it comes to like clearly depicting a timeline. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that you kind of save for your longer form documentaries, and I get that. But there were some confusing aspects about the timing here. Like 
the amount of time that he was out on injury when he was in WWE and because yeah. he was out for a while and there were a couple like levels of injury like he got that back and then he got injured again and some of that I think kind of added shading to his like desperation state of like going when when they gave him the spot to come back in and eventually leading to that Undertaker spot like I feel like there was some timing just a lot of like weird little gaps and overlaps and things that we kind of double backed on so we weren't really sure at what point in the era we were in but yeah right and that immediately came out to me because i was like wait a second <laughs> even knowing the little bit that i know that doesn't sound that, that doesn't sound right but i get that it's largely more about the shift in the wrestling culture on wcw than it was about the introduction like the introduction of nwo wasn't yeah. like immediately shutting down mortis it was more the yeah. fact that this like signaled yeah. the shift towards a style that wasn't like this video game comic book character character base yeah I think them talking about like that move towards reality based wrestling and again I mean that really speaks to how much of a how much of a WC fan I was not because I was just like okay cool like that's what happened that's what happened <laughs> <laughs> no but I mean the, it, it, Y'all are both right, though. It does speak to that, like, the 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 change in culture there that yeah. came with the NWO's introduction. But yeah. I don't know. It just, that just has, like, stuck in the back of my mind since watching the episode last night. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, anyway, don't want to dwell too much on that. Talk to me a little bit about um, significant moments from the episode or moments that stood out to you overall um, once you were done watching it. There were a couple. I mean, so I was raised Catholic, so that it never really, they touched on it, but it was a lot of like saying and not saying explicitly. Catholic guilt is a hell of a thing. Like I, I didn't have that, that type of, um, uh, I don't know what the right, like it wasn't associated with me coming out. Like that wasn't part of my hesitation. I'm sure probably subconsciously it was, but like, as soon as they said he was in, you know, Catholic school and and, went to church and I was like, "Mm," like, I I know exactly where we're going with this, where it feels like he wants to, and he just built it so much up in his head. And the moments where, you know, the whole thing with, with the box of, you know, when he's moving and that comes out and, and I was like, mm, you know, if you really wanted to hide that, you'd really hide it. Like, and then just those moments where it's like, he's intentionally trying to be forced out and just letting, it's almost like it was like, and I don't want to get too much into like the, like the cycle, psychoanalysis of it, but it feels almost like he was kind of trying to like, if it's meant to happen, you know, God will force me to come out sort of thing. Like that's what I kind of saw it as just from that perspective of how homophobic it, I mean, like it is like the Catholic church is, I mean, it's, it's not great. And, and being raised in it is just, you have a lot of, you're left with a lot of trauma, even when you kind of leave the church essentially. Um, so those little moments in time where you can see he just, is struggling with that and he's struggling with mental health and, and just being in that period of time in wrestling where, you know, it, it wasn't accepted. I think just, it's just a bunch of moments for me. It was just like this frustration of man, like if he had just waited like a cup, like, you know what I mean? Like if it was just a little bit further down the timeline, it wouldn't, it, it maybe wouldn't have been so bad for him. I mean, it, 
we will never know, but, um, yeah, that, that was kind of my, like, how I was identifying with it. Yeah. I, um, uh, a lot of things resonated with me. The, the box thing that resonated with me was the later story, the, you know, there was the box of the porn, but then yeah. he, uh, James Mitchell talked about Kenyon had this box of printed out conversations with mm-hmm. men that he had like met online or et cetera. Like he printed them out and he kept them in this box and he was very fiercely protective of this box. However, this box was out there, like it was mm-hmm. there, it was sitting around. And, and like James Mitchell even poses the question there, like, why are you like, why do you have this box? Like, why are you doing this? And mm-hmm. I found myself being like, why did you do this? Like, why would you have this box? And I kept thinking about that for the rest of the night. I swear, I went to bed thinking about this, this box. And like, if you were so scared of anybody finding like that very like true representation of yourself, of your hidden identity, then printing out those conversations and having them in a physical form, that seems insane to me. However, the more I thought about it, the more I understood like this is a literal compartmentalization of mm-hmm. his identities, literally putting his sexuality in a box. Mm-hmm. And I can understand for someone who had to keep their life so hidden, a big portion of who them who they are, like who he is, put like tucked away and out of sight and completely disappeared, act as if it never existed. I can understand why it would be so tempting and why you would need to have tangible physical evidence of the person you actually are because otherwise you could have this like slip sliding notion of like what was real and what was what was fake and what was true and what was not so I could understand needing that physical that physical object that represents so much of what couldn't actually exist in the in the open and public world Mm-hmm. But I kept thinking about that and that like really just resonated so deeply because how often do we keep totems of things for no, for no good reason, other than they represent something really precious and important to us. And in this case, these conversations like formed the, the identity that he could not share with almost anybody else in the world. So I thought about a lot about that. And I also just thought how, how much both are in terms of culture, we have made shifts away from such a blatant like homophobia. I don't want to say that everything has been fixed, but I, I do want to say like we have made such shifts towards towards more inclusivity and diversity. But also our understanding of mental health and treatment and, and intervention has changed so much. Um, I had no, I, I understood that he had taken his own life and and the tragedy that it comes with that. But I I don't think I understood the extent of his of his mental state, like of the extent that it wasn't simply depression. It was also, it seemed to be bipolar or schizophrenia. It seemed to be that he had like these deep seated issues that never really got properly checked. He had some support, but he didn't have the intervention that would have actually possibly saved his life. Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking to, to the mental health issues there, like those things get exacerbated by the fact that you become so paranoid about protecting this part of you, this part of your identity that you don't, it's not necessarily that you don't want people to know that, that you are gay. It's about the fear of how they'll react and how they'll mm-hmm. treat you. And, you know, especially being in the world and the, and the circles that he was in, like the, those fears definitely feel so much more real than they might have actually been or 
I mean, we're talking about pro wrestling in the nineties, frankly, as real as they <clears> probably <throat> would have been had, had it happened in, in a way. And I really like the point that M that you made about the box, because to me, because I thought about that a lot as well. And, to, and for me, like looking at that, it seemed almost like it was his only way of putting that part of himself into the physical world mm -hmm. in a way that is out there in front of everybody. But even if they don't know what it, what is in that box, truly, he knows. And he knows that he has these these conversations with other men that he's romantically or sexually attracted to that he can look at and know that, okay, I have this out in the open, at least like, this is like maybe like a baby step or something. And, you know, I don't necessarily like whenever people who don't have the queer experience, like automatically go to this idea of like, well, they were just like, you know, doing something that, that these kind of practices are like them just kind of setting themselves up to play. They want to be out. They want to be found out mm -hmm. in a way because ripping the bandaid off is so much harder for you yourself to do in those moments. Um, there is some truth to that, I think, but it's one of those things I think gets a little bit overplayed when we're talking about queer narratives. And sure. so like, I, I don't know that the box is just, it has so many different um, connotations to it honestly and also kate real quick race southern baptist i get it yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. it's not it's just no, not Catholicism. It's, it's, yeah it's, it's, oh no no yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. like yeah. that's polish catholic so i get yeah yeah i yeah. understand that and, yeah. and you have to add on to it that like he is dealing with modes of masculinity in both the like realm of catholicism and also in the realm of wrestling it's like that does not leave a lot of room to be able to be anything but this like picture perfect idea of like what a man is. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Yens. Thank you so much for tuning into LGBT in the Ring. Uh, we'll get right back into the thick of things, but I do want to take a pause real quick and say thank you to some amazing people that make this show as rad as it is. Starting off with Daniel Quasar, the Progress Pride Black design by Daniel Quasar is a product of Progress Initiative. You can find out more at quasar.digital. A big thank you to Sarah and the Safe Word for the show's theme song, Formula 666, off the album Red Hot and Holy. You can find them on Twitter at STSW Band, and you can check out their music on both Spotify and Bandcamp at sarahinthesafeword.bandcamp.com. Um, check out independentwrestling.tv for the best in current and classic independent pro wrestling, including live events from top independent promotions worldwide. Uh, you can use our promo code LGBTRingPod or visit tinyurl.com slash IWTVLGBT and peruse their entire library uh, over there at independentwrestling.tv. Once again, promo code LGBTRingPod or go to tinyurl.com slash IWTVLGBT check out that service uh, you can follow the show on twitter at lgbt ring pod you can follow me on twitter at wonderboyotm and if you're into video games definitely check out my video game news show the mr video game super show i co-host that with uh, twitch streamers slacker kite and lady Merwin every monday at 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific over on twitch.tv slash dead sun entertainment uh, it's your weekly roundup of gaming news, uh, and it's always a blast. So once again, check that out every Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, 
over at twitch.tv slash deadsunentertainment. Sun like the star. We'll be right back with more LGBT in the ring. I do want to talk about some moments specifically, though. I mean, I don't want the this entire show to be about, like, you know, the the tragedy per se, even though that is like so much of, of Canyon's narrative, but we, we can't talk about this episode and not talk about the Undertaker segment that you brought up, Kate. We can't talk about the Ric Flair. We have to talk about the Ric Flair and John Cena comments there. <laughs> I mean, just, I know, no, we do. It's, it's, I know it's, you don't want to, because it's just like so fucking like eye rolling and frustrating and mm-hmm. just, uh, but I mean, we're talking about two major figures in WWE under WWE contract at the time, like after Canyon has been released and after he gets this, as James Mitchell put it, pithy response from Stephanie McMahon after like, you know, a very like pouring himself into this email about wanting to be this hero for the queer community after coming out and they just bury him to his face. Yes. Um, and Look, then, I, uh, I get that people love John Cena, so I'm going to say this and people can take it for what it is. Anyone expecting John Cena not to be the consummate company man is fooling themselves. Yeah. Like, I get it. He writes inspirational books. He's in movies. He's very charming. He's et cetera. Like, he's very funny. You can like John Cena as a performer, but he has always been a WWE company man. He will always be a WWE company man. And anyone who was shocked by seeing him say these things to Chris Canyon in order to bury him to like, you know, salvage any kind of PR disaster for his company, that's, you're, you're kidding yourself. Like, you're absolutely kidding yourself. And it was not surprising me, to me at all that this, I, had not, I hadn't heard about this. So it was not surprising to me at all, though, to, to hear either John Cena or Ric Flair stand up for both their company and to bury a talent that they were eager to dismiss in order to protect their, their parent company. Like, that was not shocking to me at all. And it sucks. And uh, I don't know, it's possible that the John Cena of now wouldn't be as quick to do that, but I don't know that I could even say that comfortably. Yeah, it's it's hard now because the John Cena of now has become, he's beyond WWE. Like he's still a company man, like absolutely agree with that. But I think he's gotten to a position where, you know, he, I think he would have a more, I don't, mature response because I think the context of the year matters too. I think that was like what, 2006 maybe. So yeah, John Cena had debuted in 2004 I think like so he wasn't he wasn't down at the bottom it wasn't like he was trying to protect himself but he wasn't he's not the John Cena of today and I and and the John Cena in 2006 like there was a lot of problematic elements to John Cena character in WWE Mm -hmm. like in retrospect that I I mean I'm not going to speak for him but I would like to think that as he's grown and evolved as we all do as people that he would look back and say there are things that I did, there are things that I said that I necessarily wouldn't say right now, sort of thing. Um, I didn't know either that that interview existed. I knew only because I knew about the Ric Flair one because last week it came up and we were talking about that. But I know that Howard Stern had wrestlers on constantly. He had Triple H on, he had Stephanie McMahon on. And 
those interviews that they did, they wouldn't do today with any of them. And I think just that era of Howard Stern and, and all of that kind of stuff, it was just rife with that kind of stuff. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like just that whole time period was just not great. <laughs> not great for wrestling, not great for culture. Um, and it is, yeah. it is frustrating to see somebody like John Cena, who, you know, has done so much philanthropy, like philanthropic, I can't talk today. I'm sorry. Um, but <laughs> just all of the goodwill that he has created for himself, not just as a character, but as John Cena, the person, it is disheartening to see him, but not surprising because company man, again, to say he's like Chris Canyon is persona Nagata. We don't talk about him. He wasn't good. That's why he was released. Like, that's it. Like, if he was good, we would have kept him. And that, that was the company line. And I had a brief conversation with somebody today. It wasn't terribly related to this, but it was related to this concept of people forget that wrestlers who work for these big companies, these are their jobs. Just like mm-hmm. we are working at the companies and businesses that we work for. And if we publicly talk outside of what the company line is, what the company morals is, unfortunately we're not protected by that we could easily lose our jobs and people forget that wrestlers in that same boat they could say something they're not going to say they're not if they're in good with WWE they're not going to say anything bad about WWE because they also have bills and rent to pay and that's I think a lot of people miss that and don't realize that these people are not doing it just because they're doing it because they love it, but they're also doing it because they need to pay their bills. This is their job. Um, and unfortunately, this this type of stuff, these type of interviews happen and they're gonna come up. And I think in future episodes, it's gonna come up again and again and again. There's gonna be people, people that, you know, we see as like the good wrestlers, the unproblematic wrestlers, and no one is 100% good. No one is 100% unproblematic. Like, you're like, it's not surprising that John Cena said that. It's it's sad, it's disheartening, but it's not surprising. It also kind of called back to me, like we were talking about the years here and I think it's really important um, in our current landscape of so much pro wrestling and major companies, like multiple companies that are now like really taking spotlight, we can forget that in 2006, there was WWE. Mm-hmm. Like for a, like a Western audience, they were it. They had fought their competition. They had devoured everybody. They were shutting things up. You can, we can talk about, you know, the early days of our age and talk about, uh, you know, TNA, but like wrestling was WWE. Yeah. And so you, it's especially heartbreaking because you have this guy who is still a talented wrestler who still had so much to give being told by two very big forces, um, in the wrestling company, including a legend and Ric Flair, that you aren't good enough and you're not going to work for us. Yeah. Basically being told there isn't room in wrestling for you. Yeah. And 10 years later, 15 years later, that wouldn't, you, you won't have a person in that spot if they are talented and they are driven and they are going to work elsewhere, they're going to work. They're going to work and they're going to have people who can support them and back them up and say like, 
you are good. We are going to, we want you involved in this. But when there's one major, major, major company, they can control not just that product, but also the conversation and the cultural ideas around it. How many people listen to Howard Stern, who are wrestling fans, heard John Cena say this and then just assumed for, a, for years and years that Chris Canyon wasn't a good wrestler? Mm-hmm. You know, we can look back now. We have hindsight now. We can go back and we can look. But at that time, you have a mega wrestler from the mega company saying, oh, no, this guy isn't good. Like, that's why we don't hire him. And you just assume as a listener, well, Strong Zeno, he knows what he's talking about. That's Ric Flair. He knows what he's talking about. Um, you wouldn't have that blithe, like that, that blithe complicity now. I think you'd have people saying, well, but why doesn't such and such hire them? And what, like they, who, who's, who else is forming this narrative? There are more people now providing that perspective into the cultural conversation in a way that I think is really important and demonstrates why having one big company, why having one monopoly over a like, cultural entity is such a bad thing. Yeah. Because it forces people to align themselves only with what that company believes is the, the marketable and profitable and accessible wrestling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I just, I guess two quick things from from me, because I definitely like, I think y'all said it best, my own feelings around a lot of those, those comments there. But like, I was really frustrated by the executive Raphael Morphy saying that, that, you know, WWE wouldn't have someone train for a year to come back and be humiliated. And like, how else do you see that segment going, honestly, in, in, in the creative room? Um, and also, I love the fact that they were trying to make Orlando Jordan the first openly gay wrestler, where he's actually not gay, he's bisexual. So, good on WWE. Um, God damn it. Um, well, we're kind of winding down here a little bit, so I, I, I want to focus on some of the positives, because I think that Canyon, outside of, outside of everything that, that was discussed in the documentary... Canyon represents so much to today's crop of pro wrestlers that are out and proud and are empowered to be that way. Um, What do y'all believe uh, has led to that significance for the the queer wrestling community now? And what do you think Canyon's lasting legacy will will truly be? It's not a big question. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I know it, it is. <laughs> and, and, and that's what, I don't want to go back on this point. We already like beat this dead horse, but like, it's kind of why it's so crucial to have queer voices involved in this narrative. Yeah. Because I, I, I can say why I think he's influential and all the things that have sprung up in the years following his his passing and how the wrestling landscape has changed and in some ways in response to how badly he was treated however i i want to i i more importantly want to know what like the people who are in that world directly in that world how that impact has felt and if there really has been an impact like has it yeah yeah i think that's the thing is like we we're not wrestlers we we are fans and um I think, yeah, it's hard because 
and I'm only basing this off of the things that I can see and in, in other perspectives of people who are inside. I mean, it's not perfect. It's not 100% perfect. It's better. Um, but yeah, I really want it. I would love, I don't know if I'm the right person to answer that question. Like, it's a good question. Like that's not, you know, it's a very good question, but I mean, I don't know if it's, it's my lane to speak on it. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, just because internally there are still issues. Um, I mean, it's, it's amazing to see WWE and, and AEW, you know, more so AEW, but WWE even talk about pride month and, and all that kind of stuff. And it, it, there is that, that ping of infuriation to be like, you were shitty to so many people for so long. And now, you know, the audacity of you. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if internally he did any, like, you know what I mean? It, it's just, um, yeah, I'd love to see other wrestlers speak on this and, and what that means for them and what it's meant for them yeah. over time. Yeah. Well, um, any final thoughts from, from either of y'all as we kind of wrap this up here? I guess uh, even with, oh, sorry. No, no go ahead. <laughs> I guess even with my uh, concerns about certain lack of representation within the episode itself, I'm really glad that they did an episode about Chris Canyon because yeah. I think with Dark Side of the Ring, there is the temptation to kind of veer towards the stories that have like the biggest most explosive narratives. And this, um, while a really important story in pro wrestling that has been forgotten, is in some ways a kind of a quiet story because it's about somebody who had to kind of, had to keep so much of this out of the public eye and whose self-destruction was so much inward. And so we're not talking about plane ride from hell, gigantic explosive shenanigans um, over the Atlantic. We are talking about somebody who over a, a long time slowly destroyed themselves and was destroyed by a culture that wasn't welcoming and wasn't inclusive and wasn't supportive. And so in some ways it's a harder story to tell in a way that um, will make Dark Side of the Ring trend the way that it tends to the day after the episodes air. And I'm glad that they gave time and space to this story and that they, that hopefully people who weren't super familiar with Chris Canyon and his background and his story and his wrestling, um, that they now know a lot more and they can share that story out and they can, they can go back and they can watch those matches and appreciate the, appreciate the groundbreaking that he has done, that he did for the world of pro wrestling. Yeah, I think, cause I, I remember that time period where he was leaving the company and you'd get, I mean, we didn't have, there wasn't the social media that there is now. I think that also speaks to, you know, the, the difference in back then versus now where he, there wasn't a Twitter or an Instagram anywhere for Canyon to kind of speak out publicly without having to go through avenues of, of websites and dirt sheets and all that kind of stuff. And I, I remember after he left WWE, like he was a punchline. Like, mm -hmm. so I, I do appreciate, you know, I mean, again, we, we're well within our rights to critique how they made the episode and how they presented it. But I think them, doing it and, and providing context and kind of um, 
clearing up the narrative and, and kind of, you know, centering him and being like, this is actually what happened. Like, this guy wasn't a joke. This guy had, he, he was dealing with so much and, and, you know, he could have, I mean, he was great. Go back and watch it. Like he was a great wrestler. He was a great, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. Like there's, you know, you can go back and look at this with fresh eyes. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, Kate, um, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Um, if y'all have anything you'd like to plug or let everybody know where they can follow you on the internet, like go, go for it. <laughs> uh, nothing current to plug. You can find me on Twitter at make it loud. And that's where I have all my stuff. So <laughs> Yeah, and you can uh, find my podcast every Tuesday, uh, Grit and Glitter, um, free to download on your uh, podcast app of choice. Uh, we also have a Patreon that we use primarily to support uh, independent wrestling. So if you subscribe to our Patreon, you get a bunch of bonus content that we then use your money to um, sponsor matches and wrestlers and promotions that you love, including uh, queer super queer inclusive uh, promotions like Paris is bumping and uh, a ton more that is not in my brain right now, but you know who you are <laughs> and we sponsor you and we want to keep sponsoring you. So um, yeah, check out Great and Glitter. You can find me at uh, Forked PGH on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, y'all. Thank, Thank you. you. Who's better than that? The new entrance from Chris Canyon. Look at this that we saw last night at WCW Green. The last thing Eric Bischoff said that it would be in the best interest of Rick Flair to put 